0: Our lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that He would bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Our Father and our God, we come again. We come again in the name of Jesus Christ. We come again to beseech You for Your Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, that You would uh, attend, uh, through Your Spirit, the reading of this Word this morning and the preaching of it. We thank you that you gave it to us by inspiration of the evangelist Luke, that you preserved it for us again by your spirit for our infallible instruction. And we ask this morning that your word would fulfill that that desire that you have for it, that we would be taught, reproved, corrected, and instructed in Jesus Christ that we might be thoroughly furnished for every good work in him. We ask that your word would be fruitful, uh, that it would produce the fruit of repentance from sin, fruit of faith in our Lord and Savior, and the fruit of obedience to his will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child, and set him by him, and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name, receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me, receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great." And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever And his people said, Amen. We have uh, been looking at Jesus' instructions to his disciples. He's preparing them. Uh, Next week we'll be in, uh, Lord willing, uh, verse 51. And we see there that Jesus turns and sets his face for Jerusalem. He has been, and we don't know exactly the chronology here, but he's been, in the last uh, few passages of Luke chapter 9, all told together, been preparing his disciples for this. That though they confess to be the Christ of God that they needed to know that the Christ of God was not going to be the Jewish earthly uh, Caesar that comes as a rival to the Roman Caesar in pomp and glory and majesty to, to uh, heal the wounded uh, pride of, of the Jewish nation at that time but was rather to come as the Christ of God that brought deliverance from their great problem, which was sin. And that to do that, he had to come as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world through dying. And that he would be betrayed. And that it would be, the, the, as Jesus himself says, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes of the Sanhedrin that will hand him over, to be crucified. That he would die upon the cross, a shameful death, according to the Mosaic law. That he would be brought to ignominy. That he would be brought low. And that chafed them. And it was one of those things that they had a hard time uh, believing and a hard time uh, coming to grips with. In Matthew's account of the same incident, we have Peter, after he is been told, you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, he immediately rebukes Jesus Christ for the teaching of the crucifixion, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It was a hard lesson to learn. He has prepared them by taking Peter, James, and John onto the Mount of Transfiguration and revealed unto him his glory. But even there, we read in our passages, in verse 31, that Moses and Elijah were there discussing the exodus that he would work, the deliverance and the departure that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. We see when he comes off the Mount... And they, uh, in their own uh, pride and and self-sufficiency, couldn't cast out the devil and didn't seek uh, power in prayer and fasting, uh, that Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation. And this gets the disciples talking amongst themselves about who would be greatest. Perhaps this was uh, instigated by Peter, James, and John, who had had the special privileges of accompanying Jesus Christ onto the mouth. Perhaps it was occasioned by the the incongruity of their Messiah, their Christ, their prophet, priest, and king going to suffer. Of course, he did say also that he would be raised again. So what sort of greatness then would be? Perhaps it was uh, occasioned by a little uncomfortableness with Jesus' own telling, not only about his own work, that he would suffer and die, but in verse 23 and 24, that they had to deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. And those that lose their life, well, those that seek to save their life will lose it, and those that lose their life for my sake will find it. So what sort of, what, Sort is great in this kingdom. What sort of nobility is there? If you compare this passage with that in Mark chapter nine, uh, Matthew handles it a little bit. Uh, we see that this "who shall be greatest" is a little bit also uh, of a disagreement amongst them. It threatens to kind of tear them apart. It 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 attacks at the unity there, but largely this is also a concern about. What constitutes greatness in the kingdom of heaven? And and we see in Christ's answer, we're going to skip for just the moment his, his picture lesson of the child put there and the instructions he gives. And we're going to skip a little bit also uh, what follows hard upon this uh, about the uh, forbidding of the fellow that was casting out the devils in the name of Jesus Christ. Just for a second to look at what is the focal point of Luke's narrative, the instruction given that sort of explains the rest of it together. So if you look in verse 48, the latter part of the verse, it says, For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. This is basically a reiteration of what he had said. I've mentioned it earlier in verses 23 through 24. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be slain and raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up this cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it or save it. In, in that the least are the greatest because they follow Christ. Now, this has often been brought under a great sort of derision. Um, we, we look at it, we see it, we see the truth of it, but we oftentimes ignore it. And the church is no less a place of ambition than, than the world around us. Uh, the, there's uh, ambition in presbyteries, there's ambition in the congregations, there's ambition in all sorts of places. Uh, there is a striving to be great, and, and really mankind is driven to... to to go forth and seek to be great. Part of the problem is, is that Jesus is not saying greatness itself is not right, but that in this sin world with corrupt hearts, we get greatness wrong. Uh, he is not saying that we ought not to seek to save our lives, right? He is saying that he who loses his life for my sake shall save it. He's not saying that there doesn't need to be any motivation, any sort of goad to get us to do right. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, bless his heart, a wonderful theologian, but was often critiqued and rightly so by the churches that followed him because he corrupted uh, a little bit by, by going on a stringent philosophical way of saying that, that, that true goodness and virtue is disinterested. It has no self-interest. Now, Jesus says we're supposed to deny ourselves, but he's also saying we deny ourselves to to ultimately find ourselves, to, to bring ourselves that good. And what he's saying here is that there is a greatness, there is a nobility, there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven, but according to the world, it's reversed. That pride is not the way that we find it, exerting our strength for ourselves and seeking our own glory, which was a virtue in pagan Roman times that the man who, who was able to exert his will over his neighbor was not despised, because they didn't have 2,000 years of Christendom underneath their belts. He was not despised. He was admired. And he was considered the man worthy of following. Now, it's true that they also believed he should be a virtuous man in other ways, but humility was not one of those virtues. Jesus flips that on his head. And he says, you must be least to be great. But he's not leading them to trying to figure it out by himself. He has already put himself there as the example. He's already led by example. Uh, And he's already done it at this stage in his ministry, by the way. Uh, That will not be as clear to the disciples as it will come to be clear. But this is true. Uh, We have to seek the same glory as our king sought, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our Master, sought. And how did he seek glory? Paul tells us, if you look in Philippians chapter 2, speaking to the church and uh, trying to get them to to bear that unity of the church in love and, and humility... Uh, he speaks, and, and there's a reason why these things always go together. Is if there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort or love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies? Fulfill ye my joy, that ye might be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not at not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And let this mind being you, which was in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who being in the form of God, that is bearing his same nature, he is God. I thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't he wasn't usurping something that didn't belong to himself. But nevertheless, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men. Being found in fashion of a man, he didn't come in pomp and glory, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." This is the glory that Christ himself takes, and this is the glory to which he calls you. This is the greatness to which he calls you, and he calls you to this greatness through the same humility. He who would follow me, he who would follow me unto the glory, he's eternal God. We will never be eternal God, but we will be taken up to share in that love that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost from all eternity shares into. That's why the church is called the Bride of Christ. That we will partake of that love. That we will partake of that power. We will sit with Him in judgment. Not only of of the wicked, but also the angels and the devils. Because uh, what He is, He calls us to Him. Uh, That He includes us in His love in that. But to that glory, there is a path and that path is in lowliness and humility the the, uh, the willingness to deny ourselves for something better and if you think about it this is how you're called in the very first place i mean who are called under christ you remember christ says in luke 5:32 i came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance I come not for those that don't need me. Now, he's not saying that there are such, that we all need him. He's saying, though, that until we recognize we are sinners, until we recognize that we cannot save ourselves, then we have no part in Christ's work. That's the repentance and faith uh, part of our justification. Or we remember the, the, the parable that he gives in, in Luke 18. Luke 18. The publican and, and the Pharisee in 18.9. He spoke this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This is also that self-sufficiency. We might have a concept, and the Romans tried to, to, in the Roman philosophy of the day, think of that self-sufficient man that didn't despise others. That was the mark of virtue, and they bemoaned that they never could find it. Because when you are self-sufficient, you will despise those that are not self-sufficient. It is one of the things that uh, the younger generations chase it, when, when they're told to, well, you, you just have to take those things of society and pick yourselves up by your bootstraps. And recognizing that the, the trials of different generations are different. Uh, but... But there is the language of despising because what those old... It, it, be careful when you say this to some young person because you're, you're basically saying, well, you haven't accomplished what I have, so there must be something wrong with you. When it might be something wrong with our society right now. It might be something wrong with our economy. It might be something wrong with our government. There's a danger in self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Because we are not self-sufficient people. We have been built as creatures. We are dependent upon our Lord God. Anyway, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice the week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the publican, standing far off, would not lift so much of his eyes unto heaven but smote upon his breast saying god be merciful unto me a sinner and i tell you the truth this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself he shall be exalted that's the way paul says but god commendeth his love to us in that while we were yet sinners christ died He didn't die for those that don't recognize themselves to be sinners. If we come to Christ in humility, it is the way of Christ. You know, that's one of the things in uh, the the worship wars that are in in those churches that, that seek to gather in people through entertainment. Well, what you win them with, you win them to. If you win them by entertainment, you win them to entertainment to be entertained. And unfortunately, on the last day, they'll be as those in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Because they weren't run to Christ. The Christ was not that way of humility, the way of the cross was not put before them. They were not humbled in order to be exalted in the grace of Jesus Christ. The world's glory and definition of the glory. It is a false glory. It is a false greatness because it participates in the world's vanity and condemnation. It is one of those things that will pass away and it will bring condemnation. And we see this in every aspect of glory today. We see the miserable lives of people that are famous and and the, the way they get themselves into drugs or bankruptcy or get themselves tangled up in the all sorts of awful things, uh, that there is a dark cloud and a shadow, even upon the, the most noble, at least to the world standards, of great men and women. But eternal glory, the eternal glory that God has in store for man, must be won in the same way uh, that it is given to us, and that is through the cross. And therefore, self-denial is the life of the church. As he says, uh, to follow me, you must take up your, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Verse 23 uh, of not our passage that we read, but of of the larger passage. And we see this in two ways. First, uh, that humility, that self-denial means an openness. uh, That, that, we ought to look upon the child and receive the child in the name of Christ. Uh, he he takes this child, puts him before them, uh, and it, verse forty-seven, and he says in verse forty-eight, "Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receiveth me receiveth him that sent me." Now this is astounding language. We don't think about it because we've come through the Victorian era. The Victorian era, motivated by Christianity and was deeply Christian in many ways, uh, also had some weird sort of fixations. And one of those was children. Um, and, and they fixated on the innocence of children and, and this sort of thing, and they exalted them. And uh, we tend to look upon ch- children as the way of the future, and, and indeed they are. And, and we put a great deal of importance... Uh, even, even our secular government puts a great deal of importance on shaping the minds of children and doing things, and government uh, politicians win to office for the children. But this wasn't the world that Jesus was speaking into. The world that Jesus was speaking into uh, had honestly a very low regard for children. I would say that our world itself has a very low regard for children as anything but tools to be manipulated. But they were, they were more honest. Our, our, we live in a world full of hypocrisy now. They were more honest about what they considered children, and there wasn't much. You needed a lot of them because you needed to make sure that you had an inheritance and you had farm labor. But if you didn't have a farm, a lot of them was a burden. Uh, it didn't mean that you stopped having them. Uh, that, you know, especially outside of the people of God, it was common if you didn't want a child, in particular if you didn't want a daughter, you'd just put her out in the, in the forest and, and let whatever happened happen. Abortion was a thing in the ancient world too. Um, children were considered burdensome and a trial and a tribulation until they could get up to be useful. Child was lowly and could not be advantageous to you. And Jesus says, these are those that you receive. You've received them, it doesn't matter that they're not an advantage to you. Think about it. Was there any advantage that we offered God in our salvation? Did God need us? Does the Lord need to save sinners? Would God's justice and goodness not have been just as confirmed when Eve and Adam ate of the fruit of the knowledge of, treat, good, of, knowledge of good and evil and, and he let his sentence fall upon them that they would die and that every generation from Adam and Eve were allowed to go on from corruption to corruption to build up the judgment that is hell. Hell is part of God's justice and is part of God's glory, by the way, because he is bringing evil to heal. He is bringing evil to judgment and to justice. Would God have been any sort of maligned by the angelic host that he just let us all go into hell? No. Hell doesn't need to be defended for anybody who understands what true justice is and what true good is and the wickedness of it. What needs to be defended is the notion that heaven can be healed from, healed from all eternity or into everlasting eternity with people who began their lives as sinners. It's justice that needs defending. Psalm 8, uh, 85, 10, where justice and mercy come together and kiss uh, that event upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The justice poured out that he might be merciful to us. But there was no advantage to that, and there was a great deal of disadvantage. Because God, the Son, who is eternal God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, who had no, could not suffer, cannot do sin, could not um, uh, be killed, cannot be killed, in order that he might suffer. That's the whole motivation. Or taking upon humanity is that he might suffer for humanity. That he might suffer as a man for the sake of man. Because they could not save themselves. You must receive even the child lowly and no advantage. This is a generous love. A love that gives. A love that overflows. The love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit didn't need a creation. Didn't need the angelic host. Didn't need the, uh, the, the physical world. It, it created out of an overflowing love to share that love that it had. And when it went astray, that generous love brought it back in Jesus Christ. And this, therefore, informs then of the law of the kingdom of heaven. And so Mark in Mark chapter 10, 42 uh, and following Jesus called them unto them when they were uh, James and John had. And this will happen as well for us. Uh, seeking uh, who might sit at God's right hand. This is a very similar argument. It has later in Jesus' ministry. We see, by the way, therefore, that uh, being, or hearing the same things over and over is good for us because it's hard to, to learn that lesson. Jesus called them to him and saith unto him, You know that those which are accounted uh, to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them but so shall it not be among you. Whoever will be great among you shall be your minister or servant, and whosoever will be chiefest, let him shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life to the redemption of many. Jesus, by who he is from all eternity, ought to be served. Jesus, in taking upon his self, Humanity, becoming God in the flesh, uh, becoming God and man, came to serve those who should be serving him. And generous love is the mark of those of that kingdom. He says, whoso receives the little child receives me, and him that receives me receives him that sent me. Matthew 25 uh, verses 35, 34 through 40, he separates the sheep and the goats and the sheep, he said, come unto me, for you clothed me and fed me and, and gave me shelter. And, and they say, when did we clothe and feed you? When did we uh, see you homeless and give you some place to stay? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. The, the works that we do to others and to the lowly are works done unto God. David says in Psalm 16, 2 and 3, he says, My good does not extend unto you, O Lord. There's nothing I can do to improve your situation. So it extends to the saints in the land who are the excellent. That's, that's why we have to love one another. And loving one another is likened to the very great commandment to love God. Because we can't love God by doing Him good because His situation is perfect. So we do good to those whom He loves. And Jesus did that and He loves the lowly. He loves those that are humbled. And that self-denying generosity then is what makes for peace and unity in the people of God for the sake of Christ. And this is what we get in verses 49 and 50. John's conscience is obviously pricked. He's thinking, okay, we saw somebody casting out devils in Jesus' name and we forbade him. Did we do the right thing? And Jesus says, forbid him not. For he who is not against us is for us. Now, this will, by the way, uh, be um, uh, different than in 11.23 where he says, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Now, we need to understand, we have to look at the context. Uh, It's important to note that here he says either you or us, the Greek words sound the same, and so sometimes different copies say different things. Um, But, but there, he says, me. The unity is in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and then we, we give way to, to other things. We're not dealing with somebody who is not part of Christ's kingdom. This is not somebody who, in Matthew 7, 21, 22, and 23, cast out devils in Jesus' name. And he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. This isn't like the sons of Siva in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16, which attempted to ape the name of Jesus Christ as a magical formula. Uh, I cast out the devil in the name of Christ that Paul preaches, and the devil says, you know, I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know you, and he sends off those seven sons buck naked, which was obviously humorous and and helped actually spread the gospel, as Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9. But... um. This isn't that. Uh, This man was literally casting out devils. He was doing God's work. He had heard Jesus Christ. He wasn't one of those that were following with him right away. But but he decides to take upon himself that work of Jesus. He sees somebody that is suffering from demonic possession. And he, he says, well, I believe in Christ Jesus. I've seen him do this. In the name of Christ, you, you devil, get away. And he goes away. Obviously, he was successful. There might be times when when that isn't proper and Jesus doesn't necessarily justify the fellow doing it. But he reminds John that that, our friends are few in the world. If he's doing my work and seeking my glory, then he's one of us and we receive him. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 1 when he is in prison and there's some people preaching all the more Jesus Christ because somehow they think they've gotten a one-up on Paul and, and they may preach out of envy, but they're preaching Jesus Christ. And Paul says, even that is a wonderful thing because I'm in prison. The people that hate me are doing the Lord's work where if I wasn't, they might be not preaching Christ, but preaching against me. And Paul celebrates it. Because Paul's zeal and ambition, which he has, is a zeal and ambition for Christ's glory, not his own. He has denied himself, taken up the cross, and following Jesus Christ. And if somebody else follows Jesus Christ or magnifies his name, then that is glory. So what are the lessons and uses for us? I think that's obvious. We, um, uh, Part of it, at least, is obvious to us, or should be obvious, that we need to be receptive. Um, Some oftentimes, when church planting is designed, they targeted an area, and they'll. And you get to talking to them, and one of the reasons they targeted the area, it's up and coming economically. There's lots of young families. There's there's wealthy people that can you know help fund the church, and the church needs money. Um, that's true. And then you, you look and there's, well, there's this little rural kind of place and they don't seem to have a church and what church is there is going away. and Well, there's, there's nothing to, to give in that direction. In fact, sometimes you'll hear, well, we need to close down small churches and move them into the city and strengthen those small town churches that aren't, aren't doing so well. That's, that's not humility. That's despising somebody because they can't do you any good that's refusing to receive brethren because they don't make you look better. But they're Christ's. And the way to glory is to promote those things. We we live, unfortunately, in a world with divisions, and sometimes these divisions have to come. I mean, people cannot... Uh, worship together against their consciences and so there are baptists and presbyterians and methodists and that sort of thing and sometimes those divisions are helpful to maintain our unity in christ jesus because then we're not together fighting over these little points but we can work together separately as long as we remember though that we're part together and we're not forgetting that's the unity of denominationalism Originally, the term doesn't is not meant to 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 separate all the denominations. It was meant to allow for a variety within an overarching unity. From the Heads of Agreement, 1690. There's a I mean, it comes. I can I can give you the primary documents. Uh, We it's not just something there. It's definite history. They were seeking the unity of Jesus Christ and agreed to kind of agree to disagree a little bit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Christ is our forward example. This also means that there's nothing weak in self-denying humility. Christ setting himself to go to Jerusalem was not a weak thing. Christ in uh, John chapter 10, 17 and 18, I came to lay down my life for the brethren. That's why the Father loves me. It was not a weak thing. He, he isn't... Uh, He isn't just waiting for the Romans to take out their uh, zeal against him. It actually is a form of strength. Because he can look death in the eye uh, without fear and trepidation. Because he looks to the glory that shall come. is actually an act of strength. And Paul, in Romans 15, he says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak not to please ourselves. Let everyone please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. It is an act of strength to be humble. And as Christ is not deceived, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, neither does he cause us to exercise humility and self-denial with naivete. In Romans 14, one, Him that is weak in faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations, not to little bickerings, not to endless sort of equivalents. Uh, if they're, you receive them, but you receive them on the terms of the peace and purity of Christ's church. But we also need to understand that, that self-serving ambition and glory is harmful to us. Uh, because we will come to despise our brethren. This whole thing is because the disciples are arguing amongst themselves who shall be greatest. Uh, Jesus' parable, remember, those that would justify themselves or make themselves righteous and despise others. We, If we give ourselves to the ambitions of the world, we will be worldly. And you will fail to receive Jesus Christ. You'll be like the goat's wondering when they missed the opportunity to feed Christ, or clothe Christ, or house Christ. And he says to them, when you did it not to the least of these, my brethren, you did it not unto me. And he sends them off into the eternal fire and torment. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And as we consider the weight of your cross, that you bore on our behalf. We ask that we would be willing to deny ourselves and come follow you, that we would in that humility receive one another, not looking to our own advantage, but to your glory, and that we would celebrate and rejoice in those that do your will to, uh, with great fruit and, and great success even, and that we ourselves would seek Uh, to to become more and more of the spirit of our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, that we would seek not to be ministered unto, but to minister in the name of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.